If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. The Republican presidential primary field, it has gotten smaller following the somewhat surprising, at least in the timing, uh, announcement of South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. He announced his suspension of his 2024 presidential campaign on Sunday night on Trey Gowdy's show live, even taking Trey Gowdy by surprise. And that was just four days after the third GOP debate. And last week, voters also made their voices heard as they cast their ballots in Tuesday's off-year elections. And there's some things to talk about there. Democrats saw some success in states like Ohio and Kentucky and somewhat in Virginia and not as much in Mississippi. And we're going to ask our guest if Tuesday's turnout proved the party has enough momentum to carry them into 2024 on either side, right? So joining me today to discuss it all is my friend, Josh Holmes. Josh is the president and founding partner at Cavalry LLC, previously served as the chief of staff and campaign manager to Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell. But you might already know him because he is also the co-host of the Ruthless podcast. You can hear more of his humor and analysis there every Tuesday and Thursday. Josh, welcome to Perino on Politics. Dana, I'm so excited. This is just great. Are you? I, yes, this, this podcast show, is I've been a bit of a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> it is a thing. It I love it. I, one of the me. things I heard last week from my girlfriend is uh, she's, she doesn't work in politics every day, but she wants to keep informed. And she said, I listened this morning and I feel so much smarter. There you go. There you go. Perfect. I mean, that's the whole goal, right? It's the goal. So let's talk about the news of the day. So last night... Trey Gowdy's show is live at 9 p.m. Trey yeah. Gowdy and Tim Scott are very close friends. Yeah. And I don't think, in talking to Trey, that he was surprised eventually that this decision was coming for Tim Scott. But the timing, I even wonder if Tim Scott knew he was going to do it when he got on the show because his campaign staff didn't know. Trey <laughs> yeah, Gowdy right. looks surprised. Uh, but regardless of that and the timing, it is, it is over for Tim Scott. He is no longer a candidate. Yeah, well, it's it's significant, right? I, I think his entry into the presidential field was filled with a lot of big hopes from people around, around the country who've got a ton of respect for Tim Scott, loved what he'd done in the Senate, and, and thought he brought a very important voice to this debate. And I think he did. And I think he did. The campaign never really clicked the way that he wanted it to, however. And the traction that he saw initially was sort of winnowed away bit by bit. And I think... A, Kind of the turning, the biggest turning point for him was that first debate in Milwaukee when he kind of couldn't see him on the stage. Yeah, right? he kind of it, faded it, into the background. Right. Big personalities took over. Nikki Haley really reasserted herself as going to be somebody who was here till the end. And that vote share started pushing away from Tim in a serious way. And, and look, he doesn't, he's not in this just to sort of take up space, right? I mean, he wanted right. to win. And he's a very serious guy. And I, I think. That's one of the things that we're seeing here in 2023 that we didn't see in 2015 
in that wide open primary in that your candidates are beginning to get out of here uh, quicker and that field is winnowing faster. Part of that, Dana, honestly, is a credit to the RNC. Let me explain what I mean by that is they put rules into place, much like Democrats did in 2020, that made it difficult to qualify for the debate stage itself unless you had significant momentum, both in terms of fundraising, small dollars, and polling. And what that's done as a result is make people have to make some some tough decisions. You saw former Vice President Mike Pence, when he knew that he wasn't going to be able to qualify for the Miami debate, step aside. I think that's what's happening here with Tim Scott. He qualified for Miami. It was going to be borderline impossible for him to qualify for the debate in Alabama. And, you know, what's the point of continuing to run out the string if you're going to get to a point where you're ultimately not on the debate stage? He was a prolific fundraiser. I yeah. assume that doesn't end and that he has been a good friend to a lot of other people that are in the GOP, including the Senate races to come. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, he's been a, a massive asset for the Republican Party across the board. He did a ton of travel in 2022 for candidates helping people out. As you said, he raises an awful lot of money and, and the donor circuit certainly loves what Tim Scott has to say. So I imagine he is going to be a continued force in Republican politics. He's not going anywhere. Right. He may not win the nomination for president, but he's certainly sticking around. And I, you haven't heard the last of Tim Scott. And once there is a Republican nominee, whoever it is, I imagine that he will work hard to help get them elected. He said he's not going to endorse anybody right now, but I understand yeah. that part of it. But what happens to people who supported Tim Scott and like Tim Scott's our guy. So now Tim Scott's no longer there. Do you have a sense? Like, do they go to Haley or DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, or even Donald Trump? Yeah, well, I mean, so that's the open question with all of these exits is where does where do people ultimately land? With Tim Scott, it's it's a little bit complicated because at some point he had a very big uh, voting block that was winnowed away a bit primarily by Nikki Haley, to be honest with you. And I think ideologically speaking, there's an awful lot in her campaign that would be an easy fit for his supporters. That being said, look, Donald Trump has benefited a great deal within the Republican primary so far as be having this air of inevitability. Yep. Right. There's you know, he's got anywhere between 30 and 35 hard base uh, supporters who aren't going anywhere no matter what. But on top of that, he's had anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20 in some cases. Uh, percent of Republican voters who think he's going to win anyway, and they might as well get along, get alongside of him for the big win. You wonder whether or not that plays a role and ultimately how this winnows down too. DeSantis has got a role. I mean, the thing about Tim Scott is he didn't really have an enemy. I mean, he could, in terms of Nikki Haley on the debate stage, they had a few back and forths, but it, there was no enemy of Tim Scott. And so I, it's hard for me to believe that there's somebody in this field who they're like, absolutely, we're not going to vote for. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it scatters. My guess is Nikki probably benefits the most, but I think Ron DeSantis probably has a even odd shot of picking up some. Do you think it helped last week when Ron DeSantis got the endorsement, sort of a surprise endorsement from the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds? She's super popular there. And yep. so I think DeSantis was smart, figured out a way to take that away from Nikki Haley and from Trump. Yes. She had said yeah. she wasn't going to endorse. There's rumors out there, Josh, rumors, um, that he might announce Kim Reynolds as his running mate in the lead up to the Iowa caucuses. Does that 
work? I know Ted Cruz and Carly Fiorina flirted with that back in 2016. Yeah, and that's our only precedent for this, mm. right? Was that sort of ill-fated prior to Indiana rollout of It Carly seems like Fiorina. a bad way to make a decision, even though I think Kim Reynolds is a great governor and maybe she would be the best vice presidential choice, but you're, to base your pres- vice presidential choice on who might help you with getting some votes in Iowa. I don't know if that's the best way, but I do think she's a very competent person. I mean, I think the world of Kim Reynolds, I think she's absolutely terrific, and people in Iowa have have fallen deeply in love with her, particularly in a Republican primary component. But I, I'm not a huge fan of that play, right? I, I think at some level, what you're doing as a candidate is trying to make the case yourself. And if you can't make the case yourself, nobody else is going to be, be able to make it for you. Uh, it didn't work for Ted Cruz. I doubt it would work going forward here. It's more like a PR kind of press distraction at some level that the Trump campaign, at least in 2016, did a really good job of mocking. And mm-hmm. they've done a really good job of mocking opponents thus far in this campaign. I just, it, there's a, it, it adds to what you have to try to control in the context of a campaign. And I, I, I'm not in love with it. What I do think is interesting about Iowa, and, and by the way, I think when we had Tim Scott on Ruthless, he spoke about this very specifically, is he thinks it's important for this field to winnow because he thinks that there's ultimately a choice that needs to be made here. And if you have seven or eight different candidates taking up little yeah. pieces of this vote share, you never really get a head-to-head against Donald Trump. Now that we're working into maybe four, five, when you get into New Hampshire, candidates, I think post-Iowa, there's going to be even more consolidation here. I mean, if you're not running second or third and you're not up into the 20s, you got to start wondering about what you're doing for the field. And I think almost everybody in this field believes that consolidation is super important. So it's something Maybe to Maybe except for um, two people who um, I got notices today that they're holding campaign events. So I got like emails coming in. Tim Scott is out of the race, but Asa Hutchinson and Doug Burgum <laughs> are holding events yeah. this week. And so they continue on. All right, that's going to wrap up this segment. I've got a candidate quotable. Which presidential candidate is responsible for the following statement? We will be stuck with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for another four years and a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. And let me tell you what they're going to do. They're going to pack the Supreme Court. They're going to admit D.C. and Puerto Rico as states so we can never have a majority in the United States Senate again. We'll have that answer for you coming right up. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Perino on Politics. Okay, Josh, I want to discuss a few things happening last week for Joe Biden. So the president on Sunday of last week He wakes up and there's the New York Times Siena poll that says Donald Trump would beat you in five out of the six races and then Nikki Haley would beat you in all of them. And there was some better news for him if the nominee were DeSantis. But then so they have a bad 36 hours of a news cycle and the elections happen on Tuesday. They're off your elections, but super interesting. Nonetheless, I would like your take on it. And Biden says, look, the Democrats are doing great. And he tried to take credit for Andy Bashir's win in Kentucky. And Governor Bashir was having none of that. But tell <laughs> us about where you think Biden is right now. Jim Messina, who I would say that you and him have similar trajectories in your careers. He worked as a campaign manager for the reelection of Obama in a podcast on the Run Up podcast this week. He said he feels confident that all is fine 
that he 100% disagrees with David Axelrod that Biden should step aside. And he said, I'm looking at the data and the data is good, even though he admitted that right now they have some work to do. What do you think? Well, I think they're both right in many respects. Look, Messina is very smart, and he's he looks at this the way I think a lot of analysts look at the data. And the reason that Joe Biden is underperforming so significantly vis-a-vis Donald Trump in a lot of these polls is because his base isn't solidified. You look at the remaining part of the electorate that's either unaccounted for in, in terms of not showing up for Joe Biden or sort of in this independent weird territory, it's young, predominantly progressive, often African-American or uh, Latino votes. Now, is that bad news for him? Yeah, that's really bad news for him. Do we think there's any chance that Donald Trump is going to be able to capitalize on that voter segment? No, not even a little bit. And if you look at the Senate race in 2022 with John Fetterman against Oz, despite all of the problems that he had and the obvious limitations going into that election, they all consolidated in the end. And everything that he was under polling going into that election ultimately showed up and voted for Fetterman. I suspect no matter who you get on the Democratic ticket, much is going to be the same. Now, will they have the same kind of enthusiasm for Joe Biden that they would like? No, not at all. But if the nominee is Donald Trump, there's plenty of enthusiasm on the left to consolidate against him. So that's, I think, Messina's point of view. From Axe's point of view, he's looking at this as a historically unpopular president. I mean, historically, but what makes it much worse, I mean, Obama was pretty unpopular, too, going into his reelection. But what makes it worse for for Biden is that he can't fight his way out of this. Obama could go city to city, state to state and deliver it because he was really good at that kind of thing. They can't take Joe Biden out and have him have any expectation that he's going to be able to close the deal with voters by himself. And if I'm a strategist and I'm looking at that, you're pretty limited in all the options that you have before you. And you better hope that, that the trajectory from a, a economic standpoint and a world security standpoint doesn't get worse because ultimately he's sort of teetering on the edge. What about the additional factor of a possible third party run? Mm-hmm. Before we talk about one, one in particular who you know well. So RFK Jr., is actually polling fairly well, okay, um, in some states. I think there's a lot of caveats on that. Yeah. Jill Stein announced last week that she will run with the Green Party, and that gives Democrats fits because they I really lo- I'm believe— I'm sure Democrats love to hear that name again. Yeah, because they remember 2016, and they really think that she was one of the people that um, peeled enough, you know, enough votes away from Hillary Clinton to take that off the table for her. Um, And then you have Senator Joe Manchin, who finally announces that he's not going to run for re-election in West Virginia as a Democrat there. And he's been flirting for a long time with the idea of running as a third party candidate, perhaps on the no labels ticket. What about all that? So uh, historically, I've laughed at this suggestion because I think in sort of a post Ross Perot world, both parties have polarized. Both parties are, are further from the center. The idea that you're not picking a team has been pretty ridiculous. But I do think there's an exception this time that's worth looking at. You've never seen a Venn diagram of voters who don't like the two prospective nominees and don't want them to run for president that looks more like a circle than this one. I mean, this is a incredibly high, in some cases, 70 percent 
of the American electorate that don't want either candidate to run. So obviously there, there's a huge swath of the electorate that's open for business on a, a potential third party, but there's some infrastructure issues there. Clearly ballot access is a big one. Um, and that the, means the, making sure you get your name on the ballot. That's not, maybe just explain to people, that's not, you can't just say, hey, I'm on the ballot. No, no, and every state has their own set of rules. So you literally have a 50 state effort in very different, you know, sometimes it takes like 10,000 signatures. Other times you actually have to try to win a third party nomination from somebody from a party that's currently on the ballot, um, which is you got to get those endorsements too. But last I checked, I mean, no labels, which is the one that's been flirting with Joe Manchin and a few others, it, it, they had like 15, 16 states that they had secured ballot access. Well, that ain't going to cut it, right? I mean, you're going to need a 50 state operation and most of these states are winner take all type deals that we're talking about and so it, i find it very difficult from an infrastructure standpoint to get somebody there now if this was just simply like a a poll it could get pretty interesting in a hurry for sure and i'm not sure where a guy like joe manchin pulls off of probably off of of both the funny thing is you mentioned with rfk jr uh, is he augured towards the center and out of a democratic primary is because he's picking up sort of your what I call libertarian tech bro guys who are like yeah. very very uh, off the wall. They've they've considered themselves, I guess, Republican for the time being. But I mean, really, it's kind of an anti-vax crowd that doesn't want any sort of government at all. Well, if you know anything about RFK Jr., that ain't his politics. Like he's gotten there because of this vaccine discussion. But this is a guy who is like, I mean, you remember well in the Bush administration mm -hmm. when he was palling around with Hugo Chavez and uh, talking about the, the wonders of socialism. So th that's a disconnect that I think ultimately falls apart at some level. But the Joe Manchin thing is more interesting to me, provided that they do have some kind of ballot access that isn't evident to me right now. You know, the thing about Joe Manchin, I always try to remind people, is that he voted with Joe Biden and the Democrats 88% of the time. Yeah. It's not like he was really middle of the road. <laughs> he is mild-mannered, and his the way he speaks is very commonsensical, and he has a really nice way about him. I think that he's, he's easy on the ears, yeah. and he seems like a good man, like you'd want him as your neighbor for sure. But I always look at him like, guys, he's the pretty much the deciding vote on all of these big things that Biden are saying is, are his big legislative accomplishments. So what would Joe Manchin bring to the table that you don't already get with Joe Biden? Uh, it's a really good point, Dana. And I think, well, he has a reluctance to dive off the left-hand side of the map that Joe Biden has not uh, displayed at all, right? I mean, the first year of the yeah. Biden administration was about as progressive leftist of an agenda that we've ever seen in this country. And he's not going to do that. But you're entirely right. And, and I'll remind you, this guy, Joe Manchin, has had every opportunity in the world to be anything other than a partisan Democrat. I mean, believe you me, a lot of people made some serious. Yep. And he was he, to, he, he was the last one to vote. He was the last vote that they needed for the Inflation Reduction Act, which was really like the Green New Deal. And then right. complained about the Green New Deal. And uh, that's why there's a, we have a mutual friend whose name is spelled S-T-E-W. And yes. uh, he always reminds me to, he's like, don't fall for it. Yeah. So I keep well, my wits true. about me. 
I, but, but it's true with Joe Manchin because, I mean, look, he is a charming guy. And I think that that's the reason that he's gotten as far as he has in West Virginia. But at some point on a presidential stage, charm only gets you so far. You do have to have institutional backing of yep. a base of support. And you do have to actually roll out what it is that you believe. Joe Manchin has been very loath to admit sort of any of that uh, in public and not and when he's had a chance to put his vote on record, as you just said, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, there's not been anything since like, you know, New, New Deal politics right. that has been as far left as that. And he's, of course, a sponsor of the dang thing. So, yeah, I I, I think he probably pulls more off the left. Yeah, um, I don't think he'll ultimately run. I think so. I, I He doesn't want to be embarrassed. This is, I mean, the reason he's not running for re-election. He doesn't want to lose. It's because he doesn't want to lose. Right, right, right. And right, so right, if right. that's the same calculus on a national stage, I think you're right. All right. You heard it here on Perino on Politics. Josh and Dana don't think Joe Manchin's going to run. So if he does, you can come back and All right. you know, throw pies in our faces or something. All right. That wraps <laughs> up this segment. Before we head to our final one, here's the answer to your candidate quotable. We will be stuck with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for another four years and a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. And let me tell you what they're going to do. They're going to pack the Supreme Court. They're going to admit D.C. and Puerto Rico as states so that we could never have a majority in the United States Senate again. Yes, that quote is from former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. We have more Perino on politics coming up. Welcome back to Perino on politics. All right, Josh, I want to get what is on your mind now. Um, one of the things that my colleague on The Five, Jesse Waters, pointed out to me after the elections last Tuesday is he had these charts showing a real funding, fundraising and donor disparity between the Democrats and the Republicans in last Tuesday's election. Did you see that too? Oh, I mean, it's huge. We and what's going on about, there? We would talk, well, this has been going on for several cycles. It's been going on basically since 2018 when Democrats really put together a low dollar juggernaut that Republicans couldn't compete with. They came back during the Trump era a little bit to close that disparity, but it's really opened back up in 22 and we saw it again in 23. I mean, the governor's race in Kentucky is a perfect example. You had $25 million raised from the incumbent Democrat. Daniel Cameron raised 5.3. I is mean, that, that that's, right? Yeah. If you're looking at, wow. like, that's very, very difficult to compete, even in a state that ideologically bends more right than left. You know, incidentally, I will say it got, you know, not as much coverage, but if you look down ticket, what happened there, it was a Republican wash. Right. I mean, there are a whole bunch of people yes. that I worked with in Kentucky for a number of years, including the the new attorney general and the new ag commissioner and all of these people, Republican through and through and had absolutely no problem. So, you know, Democrats took a lot of uh, away from that Andy Bashir victory, but it really wasn't that pretty for them beyond that. Mm. Uh, Virginia is another one where I read this morning that when all the votes are ultimately going to be tabulated here, Dana, it looks like Republicans will have a popular vote lead for the first time in as long as I can remember. Obviously, they didn't win everything that they wanted to win. Uh, they, but I think this is a case of expectations. Look, Yunkin was shooting for the moon here. He wanted to try to win every possible district that he could. They won everything up to Biden plus nine. That's a pretty good day. That is a pretty good set of of accomplishments. Now, they ultimately didn't get the, the majorities in both the House and Senate there. But it's a I mean, Virginia was very blue and under Yonkin, they've they've brought it back. So I think there's something for both parties to take. One time you told me, I believe it was you, that one of the things that has hurt 
Republicans in small dollar fundraising is inflation. Yeah. Is that still the case? It is a big deal. Now, it's not everything, but it does make a difference. If you look at the the donor base, the small dollar donor bases on both sides, your small dollar donor base from the Democratic side is predominantly urban, predominantly a little bit higher income. The, the donor base on the Republican side is rural. And in places that have been hit like as hard as you could be hit by inflation over the last couple of years, it has definitely had an impact, no question about it. There's also the impact of what's happening up the ticket and Donald Trump's dominance of small dollar uh, campaign world within the Republican side. Democrats do a lot better job of fundraising for each other. Uh, Republicans, quite frankly, have just been, if they can raise high dollar, they're sitting on it. And we've seen a couple hundred million dollars exit the system over the last few years that some of these candidates down ticket haven't been able to to work hmm. off of, which is troubling. And I, honestly, it's there's not an easy answer to it. Gosh, that's interesting. Um, what do you make of the idea that, again, bringing back Jim Messina, who I talked to in the day after the midterms in 2022 about abortion referendum politics. And he said, I asked him, do you think there will be abortion related referendums on key swing states in 2024. And he said, if I have something to say about it, yes, <laughs> they will. Yeah. And well, apparently that is happening and it could happen in several different states, including Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, even Florida. So are the Republicans figuring this out? Well, I, they're certainly not figuring it out yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, but part of the problem is everything post Dobbs the decision that reversed Roe v. Wade created a change environment where anybody who is motivated by this issue off the left side is fighting to try to protect what they see as their rights. And you remember this, it, it manifested itself during the healthcare debate 15 years ago on Obamacare is there's a whole bunch of real significant population that was afraid to change healthcare plans and it motivated them in a very significant way. That is the case for abortion as long as states are continuing to discuss further restrictions, which obviously we're still in that. Now, Democrats want to expand this discussion. They know that they've been able to have some success on a statewide basis in states that, you know, typically have been more pro-life than others, Ohio being another one that, that we just had last Tuesday. My sense is this runs out of string at some point, but we're not there yet. And when you look at the way that people are talking about abortion on the Republican side, there is no unified grip. I think Yunkin did probably. Yeah, there was a unified a point for years, for decades. Right. That we're and for it life. Happened. It, it, <laughs> and then I'll, now I just feel so strange. I had someone the other day say to me that there's this woman in one of the states. I'm not going to mention her because it's I, I don't want to get into it with with, with them, but. Uh, she was very strongly a pro-life person, believes life be begins at conception, ran on that. And then after some of these elections, she's like, OK, actually, I'm for a 15 week limit, which, again, maybe that is practical. Maybe that's where the where the country is. And that's great. But I'm thinking, but if you're somebody who believes life begins at conception, then how do you get to you're cool with 15 week limit? I don't know. Yeah, it, 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 there's a distinction there that it's it's tough yeah. to reconcile. Yeah. And. And look, I mean, Republicans, conservatives writ large have argued for 40 years that this is not something the federal government should be entertaining. Yeah. So then how did we get to? Oh, I know. And you know what? If I say that, then I know who's going to call me and they're going to say, let me explain to you what, what the Dobbs decision didn't say. And they have this whole thing about it. We didn't say it was just going to go back to the states. We have this other formulation. But 
I mean, they've explained this to me four times, and now even off the top of my head, I can't remember their explanation, so it must not be that great, (laughs) actually. Well, it's technical. Because for 40 years, you told me something else. It's technical, and, you know, to be honest with you, that, that therein lies the problem for a lot of Republicans that are, you know, even deeply pro-life. How can you argue for 40 years that this is, had no business being decided at the federal level? Now, granted, it was a court decision, and that's not legislative, and I, I do think that there's a legislative pathway should someone try to take it, but the bottom line is they're not going to be able to pass a 15-week, a 17-week. Right, that's it, Nikki Haley's point. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so it's it's sort of a, a discussion that ends in nowhere. I think ultimately where this goes for the pro-life community is to get back to where we were in the early era of the Bush administration, obviously, where you were really familiar with this, where we we're making incremental progress on things like partial birth abortion laws, Lacey's law that held criminal penalties for people who not only murdered a mother, but their unborn kid. These are the places where most Americans agree upon. Mm -hmm. But right now you've got this real anxiety about sweeping change that nobody knows exactly what it means. And I think that's where the anxiety comes from. Democrats have been able to capitalize on it. And a very unified youth vote. I think in Ohio, that youth vote voted 77% in favor of the abortion access. And whereas people used to re, uh, sort of roll their eyes that the youth vote, vote was important, I, Josh, I got to tell you, the way I see it, they are organized more than ever because they have social media, they know how to use it, and they, they have seen that they've got some power when they stick together. So we, uh, we could see, be in for it in the country for a while with young people really making their voices heard, which is great. They should. I mean, that's I, I want more participation, certainly. But well, you've got to have a something. better set of arguments from Republicans on this, though. Right. I yep. mean, it can't just be about abortion. And, and to be honest with you, I've been really disappointed in how frequently we just devolve into a boomer conversation about, you know, well, in the primary, you're hearing people talk about like, well, what, what we have to do first is absolutely nobody can touch Social Security and Medicare. And what you're saying to that younger demographic who's like, you know, smart enough to read a book is like, well, it says in 2032 that thing's right. going to be bankrupt. So what? Right. I, that means I don't and, get and it. And also, like, housing costs, shelter costs. We asked that question in the first debate because I'm like, that's actually what's really on people's minds. If I think the rule of thumb is that you should spend no more than 30% of your income on shelter. Right. But for some, for some young people right now, it's over 50%. Their car payments are astronomical. Interest rates are astronomical. And it's like we are basically asking them to run their life marathon with 20 pound weights on their ankles yeah so i I I agree with you there has to be some some changes there some some initial workforce demographic pitch that deals with housing that deals with i mean can you imagine you get out of college even if you're very successful the idea that you have to put 20 percent down and you live in an urban area like where the hell are you gonna buy a house you're not right you're not you're You're gonna rent for a long time you're going to be fleeced out of that. And then ultimately the protections that everybody's talking and about for the older only thing that the Biden administration says, like today, they have this graphic that they just put out and it shows like how many jobs Reagan created versus Bush versus Obama and Trump. And then it has Joe Biden's jobs way up. Now, part of that is COVID yeah. and they're dishonest about that. But right. I read something interesting today. I can't remember where, so I can't give them credit. But it was about black Americans starting to walk away from Biden. And one of the things I said is they're mostly worried about inflation that, yeah, they can get a job, but the job doesn't pay enough to make ends meet. So they're, they, they, their point was 
we're worried about inflation. The Biden administration just wants to say, look at how many jobs we created. Like, yeah, I can't have five jobs. They are really bad at this. And I think this is one of the reasons why you're seeing their poll number so low is that their default is to say, we're doing great. The economy's awesome. Nobody. And I mean, nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks I that. Mean, it, it, I know. It, it, and there's no way to make that case to people in any any meaningful way. And you're talking specifically about the black community and, and whether or not they're they're walking away. Like, I guess time will tell. The economic uh, argument is one piece. The other piece has got to be their communities are the hardest hit by a party that rejects the thing. School choice, for example. Yep. That that the birth of the defund the police movement, the sort of ambivalence towards crime in major cities. I mean, you got city councils running on the Democratic ticket that want to take away cops to this day, despite the fact that we have record crime. I mean, those are all the communities that are hit the hardest by this. If there isn't movement away from the Democratic Party at this point, I don't I don't know what would do it <laughs> because they've created an absolutely worst set of policy issues. Well, that you can they actually um, some people might be walking away from the Democratic Party because of the president's strong support of Israel. Mm. Which doesn't mean that, that they're coming towards the Republicans. But this is, I think this is the, one of the most fascinating things that's happening in politics right now is that this this latent anti-Semitism that's been, been laying around that, I mean, all of us knew that it existed in some part, but over the last three, four weeks has been jarring. It feels extremely, shocking. Extremely jarring, incre incredibly concerning. And part of this is the modern left and how they define intersectionality, which basically you know, is there's oppressors and then there is the oppressed mm -hmm. and they don't have to know anything about either side of an argument other than somebody's being oppressed here and so my sense is there's an awful lot of young people who look at what's happening with israel and the palestinians and they're saying well israel you know they, they have things and, and the other people don't seem to have things and so it's as easy as that without knowing any of the history of this which is right. that is a absolute fault of not only our government and the arguments that we've been making, but our school systems and our, our ability to just have basic awareness mm -hmm. about what's happening outside of your community. Actually, if you're listening and you're looking for um, something for your maybe teen children or um, even adult children to read, if you go to the Tikva Fund, T-I-K-V-A-H, or Tablet Magazine, have some really good educational and downloadable um, consumable pieces that you can share in Commentary Magazine doing a great job on that as well. And also at foxnews.com, we have a new project to show th that anti-Semitism is a major problem. It's a part of our website. It's consolidated all in one place. Highly recommend a visit to that because we are committed to making sure that we beat this back. Josh, thank you so much. I have a little pop quiz for you. It's super oh, easy though, okay? Okay. You get to choose from one of three categories. Candidate, LinkedIn, campaign slogans, or Dana Reed Sports. Oh, my gosh. How, how are we not going to go with Dana Reed Sports? Oh, I didn't I mean, know I this one. Okay. Which sport did President Theodore Roosevelt save from being banned in the United States? Uh, I think the answer... I have multiple choice if you want. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. A, football, B, baseball, C, cricket. So I think the answer, honestly, is baseball. It's football. And it's football? Apparently so. Well, the reason I said baseball is I was thinking along the lines of the, uh, of the, the gambling problems that, oh. that beset the 
Chicago Black Sox and all that yeah. era. But football, it's, I don't know the backstory. You know what? All of us were going to have to go Google why because they don't give me the reason why. Huh. <laughs> all I have is the answer, and it says football. Okay. All right. Well, well. Um, I am excited because I'm doing. you're doing this podcast with me, but I get to do your podcast yes. coming up. I mean, we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be gonna fun. We're going to have a lot of fun. Be right, gentle It's been a long me. time coming. I can't wait. Josh Holmes, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.